All right, well, turn with me to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 13 as we continue to uh, study this book, verse by verse, and uh, beginning there with Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Would, uh, once you find your place, let's stand together as we show reverence to God and reading from his word, Acts chapter 2, verse number 1. Now that you're, you're seated, let's stand together. And the Bible says, Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat each and sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea? Judea, excuse me, in Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and from parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said they are full of new wine. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. God, thank you for its uh, timeless help. And I pray that you'll uh, speak out of it into our hearts as we listen God, we pray that you'll work in our life by your spirit to bring transformation, obedience, and faith, and we commit ourselves to you in Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. So we uh, continue here in Acts. We have seen that Jesus ascended to heaven and was received through clouds, and uh, the disciples were told uh, to become witnesses to Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so we think about Jesus leaving, departing, even though he had told his disciples over and over again he was going to leave, we know that uh, they had a difficult time internalizing a lot of things that Jesus said and taking them to uh, heart. And so that, but now Jesus is not present with them anymore. He is gone, and he. I think about who Jesus was. I would say the most important person in history. Some people would say arguably. I would say there's no argument. He is the most important person in history, the uh, most powerful leader and teacher who ever existed and spoke, and now he's gone. And so we think about leadership and succession. The disciples are left without the person who they've been instructed by and encouraged through and who they've seen uh, live as God among them for three and a half years and there is this need of succession. I've heard people say there's no success without a successor. Have you ever heard that? There's no success without a successor. 
So what happens sometimes in movements and institutions, uh, entities, is that they tend to flounder in the absence of good leadership. And we think, well, what's going to happen here to the Christian movement without the powerful presence of Jesus himself? And what we've find in this passage is that God did not leave them without a leader. He, he, uh, that Jesus had prepared succession in two ways. One of the ways that he had prepared succession was in the disciples themselves who he had, as the word instructively says, discipled. He had poured into these men. He had instructed and taught them and he had caused them to become more mature. But the second and most important way that Jesus had provided for succession is in the coming of the Holy Spirit himself. So the Holy Spirit is the successor, the successor, the leader, the counselor that Jesus had promised who was to come. And so that is very important when we think about the power that we need to live this life. In God's perfect plan, he provided for us power in in the Holy Spirit, in his... Uh, his experience, in our experience, in his reality. And so when Jesus ascended, he gave us this powerful gift in the Holy Spirit. So without him, the Christian movement, I think about what it would be like to try to live as a follower of Christ without the Holy Spirit. And I think we can see that it would degenerate into something like mere self-help. That's what it would be like if we didn't have the spirit of Christ to live inside of us and to animate us and to do all of the things that we're going to learn that he does for us. Or we would say maybe a lot of the demands that would uh, come along with trying to follow Christ would just demoralize and frustrate us. That's what it would feel like. Okay, I've got all these expectations placed on me, but I don't have the power to carry that out. So consequently, we would feel demoralized, frustrated, But the truth that we see in this passage is that God's Holy Spirit is given to us as an answer to the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17 so that we could experience this powerful life that we have. Sometimes I think maybe we take for granted everything that the Holy Spirit is. So in these verses and in this study, we'll be encouraged, I think, and reminded of what God is doing for us. So as we look at the passage together, what we'll see is how the Holy Spirit became for us God's powerful help. And one thing I notice in this passage is there's power in the gathering of God's people. So they had come together for the Jewish festival of Pentecost. Pentecost. That's why it says when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all gathered together together. And Pentecost brought the nations to Jerusalem. That's why we read this list of uh, uh, different countries and people who had come to Jerusalem, Jews who were pilgrims who had come there for the festival of uh, Pentecost from all over the Roman Empire. Those are the names, the places, the districts that are given. And the disciples were uh, were united in this sense. They were wanting to experience and to know God's will. That's why we come together and worship in part is to experience and know the will of God. They were united in purpose and in their need for God. We think, why do we come to uh, worship together? Well, one of the reasons that we do so is because we're needy. That's why. 
I wake up sometimes thinking about that, how much, God, if you don't do this, it's not going to get done. I don't want the weight of thinking about how Christian, uh, Christian community should prosper to be on me because I do not have what it takes, I guarantee you. We don't have what it takes. And so they came together out of a deep sense of need. And I think that always ought to be something in our minds about why worship matters. They came together and were united in prayer. They were brought together by Christ's command. That is a very basic definition of what it means to be a church, by the way. To be brought together because of Christ's command. He told us that we were to worship and to gather. And so a church is where people come together around the central reality of Christ and his commands. When he instructed the disciples, as we will see in Matthew 28, he told them, go into the world and make disciples, teaching them to, to do what? To observe all things that I've commanded you, he said. That's why we come together. It's to perpetuate this practice of uh, following Jesus' orders for us. He's the Lord. He's the Lord. He's our master. And so we have an attentive ear to him. We listen and we try to internalize and flesh out in our practices the the commands that have been come uh, have been given to us commands like loving each other right we think about what his commands are what did Jesus say about his commands he said they're not burdensome we think about that like command sounds burdensome doesn't it but he says no my commands aren't burdensome they, they're the kind of commands in fact fleshed out in communities and families that make you feel less burdened less stressed less overwhelmed and so a church is where we come together, and the reason is because we understand Christ has commanded us to live our life out in connection with other people. We are yielding more and more of ourselves to his sovereign rule. That's the confession about Jesus being Lord. It, it is in hopefully the thing that we wake up with a commitment to do day after day is to say it. Say, yes, you're Lord, I want to know your purpose, I want to walk in it and live it. And so we see that the scripture says they were, in, they were all in one place. I think that matters too. They deliberately interrupted themselves and they came together to focus on God with other people who are devoted to Christ. That is more and more a lost art in our society. That they interrupted themselves, that's what worship does. I have to interrupt myself. I have to say this is not my day, this is the Lord's day. If it's the Lord's day, I give it to the Lord. I don't keep it for myself. I interrupt myself, I come together with others who are devoted to worshiping and following Christ. And so that's kind of treated too casually, I would say, in our culture. I try not to beat people up because I know it's unhelpful, but if there were one practice, I would say that we need to learn how to prioritize, prioritize. It's the very basic one of leaving home. Of course, I'm preaching to the choir because you did that, right? Good job. You left home. You came here. You worshiped. But it's, it's certainly something that we need to uh, maintain as a priority. To me, it's so fundamental to what it, uh, what it means to follow Christ, being with others. They were in one place. They were united. They were in one accord. And unity, we think about what is it? 
What is unity? Well, it's not agreeing about everything, but it's agreeing about the main thing, right? We're not, uh, because we're different people, like you may have a different sense of uh, musical preference. You know, a lot of times in churches, people will get, you know, they'll be frustrated or whatever about things like that. You know, we come from different kinds of families and backgrounds. And I think even in my own family, I've shared that my family was really loud and uh, we didn't have a single conversation. It didn't happen at 100 decibels. And when I met Frankie's family, they're like, "Who? these people are super quiet and they keep their uh, thoughts to themselves. You don't have to wonder what I think. You'll know what I think. But it's like even in a single family, you have differences. And so what would we think would happen if you brought a bunch of people into a congregation like this one? Of course you'll have differences. But the scripture shows us there's one main thing that knits us together in a very basic way. And it is our love for Jesus and our desire for other people to love Jesus. And to know that their life has been anchored by the hope that he brings to all of us. And so unity means that we're, we're connected around the most important reality. Unity is one of the most attractive aspects of our collective testimony. Jesus said that people would know we were disciples by our love for one another. And so that unity is an expression of love. I love you despite the fact that we may occasionally see things from a, a different point of view. And so unity is one of the most attractive parts. It takes people from all sorts of uh, family and uh, cultural dynamics, social strata. It's like some some people grow up uh, in upper, you know, middle class families, or some some people grow up dirt poor. The beautiful thing about the church is that it unites people from all sorts of backgrounds, and it gives us a common. Uh, ground to stand on at the foot of the cross like people say in, in acts we see people from different ethnic backgrounds learning how to be one community and so they were and we are intended to be a kaleidoscope of human variables that are forged into a new society that is committed to Christ's life and mission that's beautiful. That's something that's hard to make. Only God can do it, and God powerfully does that by his spirit. He takes us, this kaleidoscope of humanity, and he puts us into this common body, this family. And the only thing that could really affect that is God's spirit and his purpose and mission. So we see that. Then also in this passage, we see that there's power to faithfully testify of Christ. What was the Holy Spirit bringing to them, the power that came when uh, we see this dramatic introduction of the Spirit. It, the, it's, it is dramatic, right? When you read this story, you, you see that they're gathered into a place and all of a sudden a sound occurs that's so loud that everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. They're gathered in the upper room and when you read this narrative, you see that everybody was disturbed by the sound that occurred when the Spirit came. I don't know if that's what has to happen when God, God's Spirit comes for the first time, but it's what God made happen when His Spirit came for the first time. It was a sound as of a mighty rushing wind, an appearance as of tongues of fire that the Bible says came and rested on each of them as they were gathered together. 
This was how the Holy Spirit visibly and physically manifested his presence so that they did not have any doubt but that what God said was going to happen was now happening among them. They knew this is it. This is what Jesus promised us. And so we, what was that about? What is it about? Because I think if there's any confusion among Christians, why do we have so many denominations, people would say? Why is there so, so many different expressions of Christianity? It usually comes down to questions of understanding about issues like the Holy Spirit and the way that like el- the elements are observed and their meaning and baptism. So it's some very uh, essential things, elementary things, I would say. But that's why there are so many different expressions of the one truth that we all follow about this triune God, about God and who he is. So uh, what is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is one of the things that probably creates more denominations than anything. How we understand who he is. And so in Acts, we'll see some very obvious truths. And we've talked about this already, that he is a person, for one thing. He is a person. He has the attributes, the qualities of personality. In other words, he thinks, he speaks. All the things that we would attribute to a person, you see in the description of the Holy Spirit. He's a person, a super person, the first person, as part of the nature of God, God's triune personality. But God marks his coming with this uh, dramatic flourish that we see in the book of Acts. This is from R.C. Sproul. He talked about what, why Pentecost matters so much. Why this event that's described is such a meaningful event in the life of the church. And he says, uh, The Spirit of God manifest himself among them and there was this physical, visible, miraculous confirmation They were having this burning bush experience, but he says Pentecost was this watershed moment in the history of the church. The day of Pentecost was the moment in redemptive history when God unlocked the power of the Holy Spirit and gave it to his church. Not when, uh, uh, and he says not just for them or only for them, but who who were gathered there, but uh, to the church in every age and to every Christian throughout time. So the Holy Spirit's coming here is not just important to the first century church. It's important to you. It's important to me. His coming is the uh, evidence of God's fulfillment of his promise to us, but it's also the daily power that we get for life and witness. And so they are being empowered to carry out the uh, command. One way we see this, and we're going to see it next week, is immediately Peter becomes this powerful preacher that before he was so uneven, he's still a little uneven even after Pentecost, but he, he, you can see, man, God is powerfully using the church and this movement to change the world and to bring to them his, uh, the gospel, the good news that transforms us. And so God announced emphatically that this promise, these are the things we know about the Spirit when you read the New Testament. He is called a comforter, He is called a teacher. He's called a helper. We think about what does the Spirit do in your life? What's his work in us? He's called an advocate in the Bible. An advocate is someone, the paraclete, that's a word that is used, the Greek word for the Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside 
the one who uh, represents us and helps us before God. And, and uh, he's called in Scripture the Spirit of Truth. So the Scripture's inspired, and the Spirit of Truth illuminates the Bible for us. We think, how can a person read this archaic book and understand it? There is no way that you can read it and understand it unless the Holy Spirit becomes the translator and the one who makes it come alive to us. It's a book that people will read and say, that's a hard book. And it is, because it for a lot of reasons. But the reason that a Christian can read and understand the Bible is because the one who wrote it lives inside of them. That's the difference, and it's all the difference. Isn't that a powerful difference? To think, okay, I could sit down with this book before, and it's just a mystery and a puzzle to me. But because the one who wrote it lives in me, he'll also give me the ability to understand it as I read it. You know, that's a good way to examine ourselves, too. To say, you know what, that's still a hard book for me. Of course, it always will be. Uh, an aspect of our discipleship is continuing to learn Scripture and truth and hear it taught and explained and preached and to read it for ourselves and investigate it. But, but maybe the reason that the Bible is such a difficult book for a person could be that the Spirit of God has not come to live inside of them yet. And if that's true, it's always going to be a hard book until he does. Uh, uh, not a hard book, an impossible book. There's a difference, right? It's a hard book to a person the Spirit of God lives inside of. It's an impossible book to a person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. So he's called the advocate. He's called the uh, Spirit of Truth, the the counselor, the guide. Who God, Jesus said, he'll guide you into all truth. He's a witness to these realities and to these truths. The Spirit comes to convict and to convince and and it, to show us and reveal to us truth that we might walk in and live in it. And Jesus had said he's not going to leave, leave us orphans, so he didn't. He gave us the Spirit, and he becomes power. There are two words, I, I should have put them on the overhead, that usually are translated power in the New Testament. One of them is dunamis. It's the word, my pastor used to say the word that dynamite comes from. It is dunamis, power explosive reality. The other one is exousia. It's the word for authority. So when the Holy Spirit comes, he, he brings power, dunamis, that explosive power, that even though it probably feels understated in us, it's still a powerful power. And then the authority, both of those are true. That's what the Spirit does. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. What gives you that right? God's connecting you by faith is what gives us the right to be called his children the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of Jesus promise when he said I will never leave you or forsake you Hebrews 13 5 how do do I know that's true because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us he says I will never leave you or forsake you he lives in us and so These are, when we think about the power that comes into our life, this is what that power looks like. And then there's power in our weakness and availability. Well, I'm glad for that. I'm glad that there's power in our weakness because sometimes I feel that uh, as much as anything. But in verse 7, the the people are trying to understand what's happening. What is going on here? This wind, all this crazy sounding speaking. Think about that. They've got all these people together 
in, uh, and the disciples all begin to speak in languages. That's what it's, it, let the Bible interpret itself, right? If you let the Bible interpret itself, it tells you what's going on here. When it's talking about unknown tongues, they were unknown to the speaker. But those who listened, what were they hearing? They were hearing their, the gospel, the wonderful works, the powerful works of God in their own language. So that's what's going on. But if you hear all that at once, it sounds like, what is this? This sounds crazy to us. And so, and they, but here, here they begin to understand what actually this person is speaking to me in my own language. I hear my language being proclaimed. The gospel's being proclaimed in my language. And they, and they go, aren't these just rubes from Galilee? Aren't they just country people? How do they know to speak our language? How are they speaking? To, uh, and so they, the, the understanding is that that's what one writer said about the, um, the apostles is that they bore the brunt of disparaging comments and stereotypes because they were just country bumpkins. That's what it was. Uneducated. You remember when they drag in the apostles before the Sanhedrin? It says they take note of them because these are unlearned men, but they notice what? They had been with Jesus. So they're drug in. But the perception about them is, hey, this isn't some bunch of scholars. How do they know languages? And it reminded me of these verses in 1 Corinthians that we saw when we went through it. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not or nothing to bring to nothing the things that are. Here's why. That no flesh should glory in his presence. That's what God cares about. God cares about his glory. He cares about his glory. And so can God use a celebrity? We're all about that in Christian stuff. Like, man, let's go find us some powerful celebrity spokesperson. Is that how God looks at it? No. Usually God seeks out somebody that when he finds them, they're like, who, me? Am I? You must have the wrong person. Isn't that what we always see in the Bible? God shows up and he finds Moses and he's like, no, not me. Jeremiah, I'm just a youth. I can't speak. God might use a celebrity, but he doesn't need one. In fact, if anybody's going to get in the way of God being glorified, he would rather not. He'd rather find someone who may be completely blown away that he would be chosen or she would be chosen to speak for God, but he'll use that person because God is the only person in the world that could care about being glorified, not be a narcissist. God's not a narcissist. He deserves uh, to be glorified. If I, on the other hand, was like, acknowledge me, it's all about me, I'd be an egotistical narcissist, but God's not. God is the only being in the whole universe that could say all the attention should be on me and we would be like, that is completely appropriate. That's how it's supposed to be. So God is going to be glorified and he's going to choose pathways that makes that happen, that make that happen. But also we see there's 
power and seeing people God's way, understanding humans the way that God understands humans. The Holy Spirit helped the, the disciples speak languages, as we said, they previously didn't know. They didn't have the Babel app. You know how people are if like you're trying to learn a language. I've been to lots of countries where I did not know the language and you'd learn words like pan, like uh, in Peru, bread. That's the word for bread, like you had to walk into. We stayed in this village of like 2,000 people. Sometimes we had a translator and sometimes we didn't. And you go into the village and you just sound like an idiot trying to figure stuff out, how to order bread. And the, the disciples are powerfully blessed through God. But they didn't have the Babel app. They didn't have Rosetta Stone. That's not how this worked. God instantly, miraculously gave them the power to speak a language that they previously did not know how to speak. This is what's happening here. They obeyed God, came together and surrender in prayer. And some people have said Pentecost was a reverse tower of Babel. I think that's a very interesting way to look at this. What happened at the Tower of Babel? That God confounded all the languages because they were trying to build the society that was based on humanism, right? That's what was going on at Babel. Let's build this tower that reaches to the heavens. Could they have done that? No, but what was in their mindset is like we are building a culture in which God is going to be completely eradicated. Does that sound familiar at all? That's kind of like the world now, right? Like we'll build this culture, we'll leave God out of it altogether. What God does at Pentecost is the reverse Tower of Babel. At Pentecost, he confounded the languages at, uh, or at Babel, he confounds the languages, but at Pentecost, he brings people together and clarifies for them his message in bringing to them this good news. So he thwarted attempts to make a godless society at Babel, and at Pentecost he created the potential for a God-centered society. This is what's happening in this passage. Millions of people crowded to the festivals in Jerusalem, and God loved them all. That's what God is like. Aren't you glad? He brings all these people together. He loves every single one of them. In the first century, Greek was the lingua franca. It was the trade language. Kind of like uh, if you travel in the world, a lot of times people are trying to learn English so they can work on switchboards and stuff like that when you have a service call. (laughs) When you call Comcast, they're trying to get those kinds of jobs often. But English is in the world, in other words, kind of the lingua franca. It's the trade language of the world. Well, in the first century, Greek was, but it was still very much a multilingual world. God is no respecter of persons. And the gospel is bigger than any of our cultural ethnic differences. Nothing makes less sense than racism. I've never been able to uh, figure that out because the Bible says clearly in the book of Acts that God created every single human being on the face of the planet from two parents, two human beings. Everybody else came, came from them. So that there's, it's hard to imagine something stupider than racism. God made all the races from just two parents, and our ethnic realities have meaning to us, but God doesn't stop at our borders. God loves the whole world. For God so loved the what? The world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting 
life. God loves the world. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, the Bible says. And the the people here said, now each of us is hearing uh, these people speak in our own native languages. And it shows God's remarkable power and his caring provision. And what we see here at Pentecost is God seeking and saving the lost. That's what's occurring. God seeks and saves the lost. He's taking the initiative and bridging the gap. I love that. I love that God is taking the initiative, that God is saying, here's, uh, here's stage one. Jesus came, virgin born, uh, God become flesh, perfect human being, the only person that lived a, a whole life and never sinned. That was a testimony of everybody that knew him. And then he dies on a cross, the sacrificial gift to the world. And then he's raised powerfully from the dead. And then he ascends into heaven. And then the spirit comes and God says, I am bridging the gap. I'm taking the gospel to all the nations. This good news is, uh, of the kingdom is going to all the nations. And so these Pentecost travelers, pilgrims, were hearing all about God's wonderful re- realities. And then the scripture shows us in this passage also, lastly, that there's power in responding correctly to what God is doing, what God is up to. So we see this passage closes with a couple of responses. The people are perplexed, amazed, perplexed, it says. What's happening to them is incomprehensible. We don't, we, it needs unpacking. The event needed unpacking. And like I said, next week we'll see Peter's message. He unpacks it. They go, it looks like to us a bunch of guys got up and got drunk at 9 in the morning. And Peter says, no, they're not drunk as you suppose. This is the promise that's been given of the Holy Spirit. And then he's going to preach a sermon that we're going to look at. I don't know if we'll look at all of it next week because it's lengthy. But we'll see his, the sermon. He's unpacking this event. He's saying this is what's occurring. So people today, do they need help understanding what God is up to sometimes? Of course they do. You know, we, sometimes I think about that. I've been a pastor long enough that sometimes people will show up to church un, uh, kind of unexpectedly. And I always think God is up to something there. And, and probably that person may not even know what drew them out. But they need other people who will be faithful to God to say, this is what's happening. This is what God's up to. His spirit is working and drawing you to himself, and he wants to forgive and cleanse you and give you a life that has a different meaning than it did before you came here. So that these people are perplexed, but they're open, right? That's what Because a bunch of them are going to give their life to Jesus. A bunch of them are going to say yes and be forgiven and baptized. And so that's what there is a response that the disciples are there to help them. The Great Commission, we sometimes call it, is in Matthew chapter 8. It's in every gospel and in the book of Acts, so I think it's important. It's where Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations and teach them everything I've commanded you. That's our task too. You know, he told the disciples that, but it's our task to make disciples. And we do that so much easier than you probably think it is. I've said lots and lots. I just enjoy lunch with people. And often it's like those are moments where we, uh, if it's real fellowship, it's centered in spiritual truths and realities. But discipleship occurs often when we connect to each other. It can be formal. 
And a lot of times, that's why when Jonathan stands up and he says, hey, come to a small group Bible study, it's not because Jonathan's teaching small group Bible study and it's for him. It's because we need that. We need to be together with others and learn the Bible and discuss it and get our questions out there. Suss it out, like they say. That's what happens, it should, in small group ministry. And if we outgrew one room, we should, you know, we'd be thinking, hey, uh, let's get a couple of other rooms full of believers that can suss it out, you know, that can learn and grow. And, and uh, But this is our task. And, and so to take it seriously, it means we spend time with people. We take what we know. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.2 says, The things that you heard from me in the company of many witnesses, these commit to faithful people that they in turn might teach others. What does that sound like? That sounds like multiplication and discipleship. It's God's plan. When that happens, you know what happens to churches? They get healthy. They flourish. That's what happens. The things you heard from me in the company of many witnesses, these commit to faithful men that they in turn might teach others. That's what God's plan is. So some people were responding by being helpers, right? Peter stands up. He's like, I'm going to be a big helper here. I'm going to tell you what's going on. And so we can share in that also. But some of the people were, were resistant. They, they're just drunk. That's all. That was what they said. They derided and ridiculed the disciples. Hey, guess what? You'll encounter some of that in the world too. People are like, I don't know what's going on, but it's stupid. <laughs> well, sorry. There's going to be that. There's going to be pessimism and negative. You know, there are people that think we're insane because we believe that God is real to start with. And then they think you're a step uh, more insane because you believe you became a human. And then they think you're even more insane because you believe there's only one pathway to God and it's through Jesus. And all, all we can say is we are just listening to what Jesus said and trying to live it out faithfully in the world that we're a part of. And we're not doing it to be hateful. We're doing it because we have experienced God's love and we want you to experience it too. But they, they were not drunk but sober uh, clarity is what was causing the disciples to speak and them being filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit, but it was the Holy Spirit. And their behavior appeared foolish to, to people, but not to God, and that's who matters, right? We might, what we do might appear foolish to people, but as long as God knows what we're doing, that's what matters. They experienced miraculous help to share a life-changing message, and that's what we see in this passage. So God cares about bringing... Uh, we sang about this, I noticed in one of the songs, bringing down the barriers that separate us from him, that separate us from each other. And God is at work to rescue and restore people. Still, that's what he's doing in the world. God empowers you and I by his spirit to take part in his salvation purposes. Us, we get a share in that. God hasn't left us to try to do the Christian life on our own. As I say, I think this is understated in our life sometimes. Sometimes because we just sort of, um, you know, blindly, blightly go through life. Um, we don't realize God is empowering us every day to live beyond our ability. And the Holy Spirit is the reason for that. If we didn't have His Spirit, we'd be in deep trouble, I would say. But thankfully, the Holy Spirit is available immediately to any person the second after their conversion. I don't know how quickly it happens. I know when you're converted, you get the Holy Spirit. Here's how I know two verses as we close that the Scripture gives us. Romans 8, verse 9. 
says, but you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. How do I know I belong to God? Because the spirit of God lives inside of me. That's how. So the if, if a person uh, has the spirit of Christ, we belong to him. And a, a second, however fast it happens after conversion, the Spirit of God indwells us. Here's what Jesus said in John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's God's beautiful promise to you of what the Holy Spirit means and does. <clears throat> and if we belong to him, he lives inside of us, and it's a powerful supernatural reality that I cannot f- fully understand or explain but I know that it's a tremendous privilege that we have, that he lives inside of us. It's our advantage to enjoy. So my encouragement to you today would be to live to the fullness of the privilege that you have. Live to the fullness of that privilege by being obedient, by surrendering, by depending fully on the help that we receive through Christ. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We can be. We're inhabited by him. We can be filled by the Holy Spirit for holy purposes. For holy purposes. God has a holy purpose for your life. Holy reasons that you, he's uh, come to live in <clears throat> inside of us. We have come to a place in our service where we are going to observe the Lord's Supper together. And so I'm going to invite you after I've prayed to stand with me. I want to read a scripture that is uh, specific to what the um, meaning of the Lord's Supper is. And it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you want to turn over there. And we know that the church at Corinth had uh, problems with idolatry, and uh, they often would permit uh, the meaning of their worship to become obscured by their um, abuses and and practices that had nothing to do with uh, Christian faith. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break? Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So, when we try to understand the meaning of the Lord's Supper, uh, we've said many times it is a portrayal of the sacrifice that was made to secure our pardon, our forgiveness. Without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And Jesus made it clear that he said, I'm the bread of life. And we, have, we partake of him. We, can, we take him into ourselves. And he lives in us. But as we come to these elements today to observe the Lord's Supper together, the scripture encourages us to examine ourselves. And so I want to just take a few moments. We'll be silent and then I'll pray for us. And then I'm going to ask uh, uh, Ken and Varney if you would come forward and we will uh, serve the elements. And, of course, you just come and you'll, uh, you, you'll take... Um, the bread and dip it into the cup if you are comfortable in uh, participating in that way. And um, and we invite you, if you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, please participate. Father, we are grateful for the truth that Jesus Christ has come. And because he came, the promised spirit has come also to live in us, to give the life that you have called us to 
this powerful meaning. You're the resource that we have. God, we pray that when we've grieved you, that you'll forgive us. God, we, uh, we know that your, spirit say, uh, your word says that your spirit can be grieved. And so, God, sometimes we uh, have grieved you. And, God, sometimes we've quenched you. Your word says the spirit of God could be quenched through our unbelief or grieved through our uh, carelessness and our sin. And so I pray for each of us, God, please help us that we might be able to examine our lives. And I pray that you would cleanse us. And, God, that you would give us these moments so that we can walk before you in a holy purpose. Thank you for your cleansing. God, thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you for the body of Christ given for us. And let's take a few moments just to be quiet uh, before the Lord. And then in a moment we'll receive communion. Our Father, we thank you again, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Also, if you're more comfortable receiving uh, communion, taking.